the grid, a digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans, believers, and patriots alike. You are listening to a special edition of The Grid. We've titled this series, January 6th, Eyewitness Testimony. Sean Griffin and I sat down with two individuals who attended the now infamous Trump rally. They will share their boots-on-the-ground experience, both the day of and the day before this rally, the so-called riot, a.k.a. the insurrection. This special four-part series will be released over consecutive days in counter to the televised Congressional Circus. I mean the Congressional January 6th hearings. We'll be back for part one right after this. Welcome to this week's News and Review, and what I'm dubbing, Are You Kidding Me? In economic news, gasoline topped $5 per gallon as the nationwide average continues to soar. We're told this is Putin's gas hike, but come on. The trajectory line was already increasing dramatically way before Ukraine. And Biden's energy secretary, ex-Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, says the solution to these energy hikes, yeah, just go buy a Tesla. Are you kidding me? Inflation on an annualized rate hit 8.6% this week, another 40-year high. We are setting records almost every month and not the kind that we should be proud of. Ask most Americans if they feel the 8.6% inflation, and you will get a chuckle. Why? Because in most cases, 8.6% is woefully understated. Yet this administration is in a tailspin. Biden is reportedly going to visit Saudi Arabia soon to try and come up with a solution at the gas pump. Really? How about allowing us to drill domestically so we aren't dependent on the Saudis, whose only ally is themselves and their bank account? Are you kidding me? In political news, a man was arrested this past week for planning to kill Justice Kavanaugh. Yes, you heard that correctly. And when I say planned, this is not mere idle conversation. This 26-year-old person had traveled all the way from California and was dropped off by cab in front of Kavanaugh's home. Having seen two U.S. Marshals, he walked away and eventually called the police on himself. Among the contents he carried were a Glock 17 pistol, a knife, zip ties, pepper spray, duct tape, hammer, screwdriver, and a crowbar. He openly stated he was motivated in how Kavanaugh might vote on the Dobbs case that would change Roe v. Wade precedent. Not a peep from our liberal friends. The New York Times buried the story on page A20. Are you kidding me? Fox News reported on June 11th that the Democrats are openly admitting the U.S. is falling apart under Biden's leadership. According to reporters Reed Epstein and Jennifer Medina, quote, many Democratic lawmakers and party officials are venting their frustrations with President Biden's struggle to advance the bulk of his agenda, doubting his ability to rescue the party from a predicted midterm trouncing and increasingly viewing him as an anchor that should be cut loose in 2024, end quote. Wow. That is a damning statement, and the circus of the January 6th hearings in Congress is not helping Biden. If there ever was a prime example of congressional behavior that is woefully out of touch with the average American, this is it. Americans are being crushed under inflation, and Biden and the Democrats want to talk about the election certification that is done and gone. Are you kidding me? News and Review Special Focus. The story behind the story. Today, we're going to talk about the following. A gubernatorial candidate, the FBI, 
partisan politics, and God's sovereignty. They are all related. While this story comes from the state of Michigan, the principles are applicable to every single person in every single state. So please listen carefully. So here's the story. This past week, it was reported that Michigan Republican gubernatorial candidate Ryan Kelly was arrested by the FBI and charged with several misdemeanors related to January 6, 2021. Specifically, that he was part of the group that was inciting the now infamous, but debunked, attempted insurrection. Those who don't know the story behind the story, especially my fellow patriots, are quick to call foul play, and it's just another example of the heavy-handed government punishing political opponents. That's the conservative narrative, but I want to dive deeper and tell you the story behind the story and related news that is truly an eye-opener. So first of all, I am no Ryan Kelly fan, pure and simple, and I can give you several examples of why that's the case. First, I've attended at least three events where Ryan Kelly spoke. Honestly, he sounds like a Democrat who's just repeating talking points, Republican talking points, with no substance. I saw him at two Republican events and also one rally in Lansing, Michigan. All he's doing is spouting talking points with little substance. That in itself isn't alarming, but it just doesn't float my boat. But my second point is that at one of these Republican events, he called out the Michigan congressional leaders, including the Republicans, and blamed them for not accepting petitions that he had delivered to the Capitol. He used this as a rallying cry of why they all need to be replaced and that we need fresh blood. Well, one of the state Republican senators that I know was actually in attendance, and she got up and spoke into the microphone to call Ryan Kelly to account. What he had done is taken a truckload of petitions and then dumped them on the Capitol steps like trash. Then when the Michigan legislature didn't come out and pick them up for him, he whined and claimed that they just wouldn't accept the petitions. This is what liberal and godless leaders would do. It is not for those who claim to walk in honesty and integrity. And then as related to his arrest, some reports suggest that he disguised himself on January the 6th, wearing face coverings and a backwards baseball cap, sunglasses, encouraging people to go into the Capitol. This reeks of someone who is hiding, deceiving, and not willing to stand out in the open with his own rhetoric. So for those reasons, I'm really not sorry to see his gubernatorial campaign have this kind of speed bump. But now to the seemingly unrelated but extremely relevant story. In the past week or so, the Michigan Supreme Court upheld the canvassing board's decision to disqualify the top two Republican gubernatorial candidates in the primary because of fraudulent signatures trying to get on the ballot. Therefore, they didn't have enough legitimate signatures to qualify to be on the primary ballot on August the 2nd. And why is this important? Well, these two candidates represented the two frontrunners in the GOP primary. One was a former chief of police in Detroit, and the other was a wealthy businessman. The former chief of police likely had a shot against the tyrant Whitmer because Detroit is a democratic sanctuary, but this police chief likely would have siphoned off a significant amount of votes. But by the way, Ryan Kelly, while not a frontrunner, was off, often running in the polls in the, somewhere between third and sixth place in the pre-primary polls. So now to the canvassing board. This is a bipartisan board with two Republicans and two Democrats. But wait for it. All four of this canvassing board are appointed by the governor. That would be Governor Whitmer. It's likely the two Democrats are hardcore and the two Republicans are likely rhinos, as Whitmer would never appoint staunch conservative freedom-loving Republicans to this board. This is, the canvassing board is the one who invalidated the top two candidates. So now, this is speculation on my part. But the move to invalidate these top two Republican GOP gubernatorial candidates seems like an attempt to cripple the GOP's chances in the fall's governor's race in November. 
Even outside news sources are pointing to this as a big blow to the GOP chances to win the governor's seat in Michigan. Now, I'm not claiming to be a prophet by any means, but I've asked, God, where are you in all of this? And I was reminded that the candidate that we support is Garrett Saldano, is running strong. He typically is polled between third and fifth place in the GOP primary. Well, number one and number two have just been invalidated. Ryan Kelly is not going to get GOP support now he's been arrested by the FBI, because you can imagine if he was to win the primary, it would be so easy to campaign against him because the campaign slogan would just be, are you going to elect someone who might end up in jail? So that's not going to happen. So by several measures, it means that Garrett Saldano is likely to be the number one or number two candidate going into the primary. And if you don't live in Michigan, you don't likely know who Garrett Saldano is. But he's a chiropractor by trade and was one of the principals that launched the Unlock Michigan campaign that helped strip Governor Whitmer of her executive power. So it appears the canvassing board and the FBI removing challengers to Saldano, and while the Democrats don't fear him, they should. He has a strong grassroots campaign, and in the Unlock Michigan initiative, he was able to assemble several hundred thousand petition signatures a relatively short period of time. And because he is a complete outsider, certainly he is going to garner significant support from the Trump campaign. So what does this all mean? Well, before we start crying a foul play by the FBI, let's look beyond Ryan Kelly. He was not the candidate that we needed in Michigan. In fact, in some cases, I referred to him as a snake. I just personally don't like him at all. Yet I'm reminded that God cares about all people and people who would be God-fearing and govern his people righteously. I don't know if Garrett Saldano is God's chosen governor for Michigan, but it certainly seems his path to challenge just got easier, not harder. I believe the governor's seat is ripe for this challenge. And in some ways, it reminds me of Dr. Sherry O'Donnell's campaign for the U.S. House of Representatives in Michigan's 5th District. It is ripe for the taking. So let's remember in these stories to not just gravitate to our own narrative, but to dig deep and understand that often there are other things at play. God is still in control, and he will not be mocked. For this special news and review, that's a wrap. June 9th, 2022, the desperate Democrats in Congress did something I've not seen in my lifetime. They held public hearings, hearings made for a Hollywood production, but located in the sacred halls of our capital. Not to talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or the aggressiveness of China and East Asia, or the domestic problems of 8.6% inflation, a 40-year high by the way, or surging gas prices that topped $5 a gallon this week or the border crisis exacerbated by this administration's acceptance of illegal immigrant behavior, or even the attempted assassination of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh because of the court's apparent correction of long-precedented bad case law with Roe v. Wade, or even maybe the other countless examples of failed policy after failed policy. No, this public spectacle was to revisit January 6, 2021, when a few hundred idiots broke into the Capitol amongst tens of thousands of otherwise peaceful patriots. We knew, I knew, this day would come. That's why we did two interviews, not of political pontificators or biased pundits. We went straight to the source. We interviewed individuals who were there on January the 6th, who saw with their own eyes and their own ears what actually happened. No grandstanding, no self-serving bias, just plain old eyewitness accounts. As I said, we knew this day would come, and so it has. That day is now. Today, we listen in on this interview with Elliot. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Elliot Jordan. We've known his family for years. Originally, 
from Southwest Michigan. Elliot's 23 years old and currently resides in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's a videographer, works both independently as well as for a church and has a lot of experience in the media world. So Elliot, I really appreciate you spending some time today to talk to us about January 6, 2021. That is a date that many people look at with very different and opposing point of views. On one side of the coin, it was a day where people finally had had enough and said, we need to stand up for freedom and righteousness and truth. All the way to the other side of the spectrum, that this was basically the greatest insurrection we've ever seen in our country and the greatest threat of democracy that we've seen since our founding fathers. But what I'm really excited about today is that you were there. Is that right? I was there. Yeah, I uh, I just started working for a church down in kind of the Tennessee area. And the pastor there, he's a very outspoken guy, you know, big patriot. And he asked if I wanted to move down early, basically. I think it was five days early. He asked if I could come down the next day because he had a way for me to get to the Capitol. And I was like, of course, I'm going to go to that. You know, that's not something you're going to miss. So drove down and then uh, I drove down to Tennessee and then the next day I drove over there and then I was there for the whole day. So, yeah. So you got, did you guys get there the day before or did you arrive the morning of? We got there the day before, got there uh, that the night. So the night of the fifth, we got there, got in our hotel uh, at like nine or 10 o'clock, you know, it was later, but yeah, we got in the day before. So we were there the whole day of the sixth. That's how we travel. It seems like we're always uh, doing the red eye one way or the other. Yeah. <laughs> so you wake up, it's January 6, 2021. Tell us what that morning was like, kind of what you did, how you ended up there, what you saw. A lot of anticipation for what was going to happen. You know, we knew that Trump was going to be speaking. We knew that there would be, we were hoping that something would happen in any direction, I guess. You know, we were hoping that something would really be moved that day. If that makes sense. Uh, we got up that morning. We got up at seven, I believe, got out the door of our hotel at seven uh, because I think the speech for Trump started at like 1030 ish somewhere in there. And we wanted to be there early enough that we had time to get up close and maybe get inside. They had a main area that they had fenced off for like a thousand people or something that was going to have kind of close inside the speaker area. And we were hoping to get there in time for that. And we weren't by a long shot. I mean, it was, I think it was in the 20s or 30s that morning. It was really cold. And there were probably five, six, 7,000 people there by the time we got there. And that's and, before eight o'clock, right? Oh, that was before eight o'clock. Yeah, that was early. <laughs> yeah, we got down like seven, 7.30 and there were already, I mean, there was a lot of people out there selling Trump gear. There was just so much stuff, so many signs, thousands of people flocking that direction. So when you arrived, um, there's already several thousand people there. Were you the last ones to arrive or did can people continue to arrive and file in? Oh, they kept coming. Yeah, they pretty much didn't stop coming the entire time we were there. I think we left that area at kind of 1130, 12, and they just kept moving their way in the entire time. It was it was wild because while you're there where the venue was, there was quite a bit of yard between that and the Washington Monument. And by the time we were done there, they were all the way back. Is there an estimate of how many thousands of people were actually there? I check every now and then. And so far, I haven't actually seen an official estimate anywhere, but I would definitely, I mean, you know, some people said it was a couple thousand or whatever, but it was at least, I don't know, 50,000, a hundred thousand. I mean, I'm not a crowd counter, but there were, there was just a sea of people as far as you could see 
in every direction from where we were because we were right kind of towards the stage but still near the center of the group and it was just people forever it was it was awesome so when you arrived i mean i know the media has portrayed this as a violent event did you get a sense that the people in general are were very frustrated definitely frustrated but i think they were very hyped up i mean you know this this was trump this had been our president for the last 4 years i think he did a great job in a lot of aspects and uh, we were excited to see what he was going to say. We felt that the election had been stolen from us through fraud. Uh, and we were curious to see, you know, what he was going to say, what would happen. And no, I mean, yeah, people were excited, but it was a very energetic, happy, excited, if that makes sense. That's an interesting take. So it was happy and energetic. Did you see that this incense or this frustration that the election had not had not gone in a way that was above board? that the people that you saw in that crowd were taking it out through violent acts. Is that what you witnessed when you were there? Oh, not even close. No. I mean, I saw there were like a lot of families in the crowd. You know, there was everyone was peaceful that I saw there. It's like you could go up and talk to anybody. I just walking by this one guy saw me carrying a camera and he's like, hey, I got a message for you. And he gave me this message, which I have on my computer. And he was like, hey, you know, this is a day that the Lord has made. We're here to get our voices heard and just have a good time and, you know, get heard peacefully. And I didn't prompt that. He came up to me. So that was that was the attitude of everybody, man. You could talk with anybody. It was a great time. So that's interesting because I don't know that it was reported anywhere or I saw any video of people praying and just really petitioning the Lord on behalf of our nation. Is that something you saw when you were there? Occasionally. I mean, it it wasn't a lot of people down on their knees, like a sea of people like that. But I mean, yeah, there were people there that knew that there was that there was something kingdom oriented going on that day. It, there was a spirit. There was a spirit there that was really good, I felt overall. Well, that's interesting because I do trust, you know, your discernment in that area. Now, what I'm not hearing from you is there was anger and vitriol looking for an outlet to just explode on someone and to really take it out in acts of violence. That's not what I'm hearing from you. I mean, there was definitely frustration, right? Because we had seen Trump winning when we went to bed and we woke up and he had lost by a decent amount. So yeah, there was definitely frustration, but it wasn't, it wasn't there to be taken out. It was there to be heard, if that makes sense. It wasn't there to cause damage to something. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it wasn't there to cause damage it was there to make sure our voices are heard in yeah. the midst of what we call is um, legal civil protest. Yeah. And that's what we were hoping would happen. We weren't we weren't going there expecting to take over the Capitol and put Trump back on the throne. You know, we were there because we felt like there had been something wrong that happened and we wanted to see how it would be handled legally and what people would do to step up and, you know, try to take that mantle and see what they could do. So you and I spoke a little bit earlier. Once Trump had spoken, I know with the crowds and the speakers, it was really difficult uh, to hear from your vantage point. What did you guys do next? So we were there. Yeah, we tried to hear what Trump was saying. Couldn't really hear it. There was so much noise in the crowd and we were far back enough. We couldn't get that. Uh, after he spoke, we made our way back to our hotel. I was actually shooting with Business Insider at the time and they had one of their camera people there as well who was kind of getting in like a documentary and what our group was doing. And so we went back to the hotel, did an interview on what we thought of what had happened that morning, gave our thoughts. 
and then, you know, got some pizza, got some lunch, just took a break for a bit. And so you're, you're back at your hotel, you're resting. It's been a, it sounds like a really cold morning. It was freezing. Yeah. In the midst of a lot of people and you're taking a break and then what happened? We were doing our interview and uh, we had the news on, of course, because we want to see what they're going to say about what's going on. And by that time, people had started to move towards the Capitol, head that direction. And uh, we saw them getting up there and we were like, hey, great. You know, I mean, that was part of the plan for the day was that we were going to move over to the Capitol to let the senators and people in the House know what we were thinking. Uh, and then we started seeing we saw an article that someone had broken in. We saw an article that someone had been shot inside and taken out. And during that whole time, we were still at the hotel, but we figured it was like, all right, if we're going to get down to see anything, we have to go now. You went down to the Capitol. What did you see? Did you see thousands of people storming the Capitol and trying to get inside? <laughs> no, actually, most people were leaving by the time we got there. And I think that was at probably about four o'clock, I want to say. But there was already a lot of people heading out because they were like, hey, you know, police are starting to show up. Feds are starting to come that way. And we got up there and no, nah, it was like there was a couple thousand people that were on the steps there. There were a bunch of people kind of in the yard, but they weren't doing anything. They weren't destroying things. They were just there chanting along and having a good time. There, there wasn't any violence that I saw while I was there. So after all of that happened, uh, how did how did your day end? Uh, it ended because we uh, hung out there for a while. I think it was about half hour, 45 minutes, just kind of taking it in what was going on. Uh, and then we had like a SWAT van go by and we were like, well, you know, we, we stayed at kind of the outer lawn area of the Capitol. We didn't go up to the steps or go inside. And we kind of figured that, you know, if they were going to start doing something, then we needed to be somewhere safer. So we started heading our way out from the police, you know, because they're going to try to enforce law, which no one was breaking, but they were there to, to do their part, I guess. So we headed back to our hotel and went to bed and then headed out the next day. I mean, it was exciting, but it wasn't like it felt life-changing or anything. It was, it was another protest for me. I think one of the interesting things that you said is the protest was exciting, but it doesn't sound like you ever felt in danger yourself, that there was anything that was triggering hey, we've got to run away. This is this is dangerous. Uh, violence is about to erupt. Did you at any point feel that? Oh, never. No. And I, I, I do some protest documentaries every now and then just mostly for myself, just to kind of be there in the different crowds. I've done a Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, I've done an anti-COVID lockdown protest. You know, it felt very peaceful. No one was there in anger there were some people who caused trouble that day, right? It's like there was some equipment broken, I think, from a news agency. That's not okay, obviously. Uh, and then breaking into the Capitol, some of the damage caused. It's like, that's not okay either. And I don't think anyone thinks it is or was at the time. But not like 99.99% of people were there to make their voices heard and just have a good time. It felt, it felt like a party. It really did. You could talk with anybody. People were friendly. They were given advice on where to go. It was just a good time. So have you seen a lot of the news reports that showed, you know, their version, if you will, of January 6th? Have you seen some of those on the major media outlets? Oh, yeah. I mean, I followed that closely just to, you know, see how they would spin that. I knew what my experience was like there. It's like, OK, let's see what people said about it. And it was they ignored everything that happened except for what was bad. Right. It's like I think most people can agree that like the damage caused to the building, not OK. 
Like that kind of thing was not okay, but that was a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of what happened that day. And to see it covered that way hurt a bit because like, you know, we've seen the black lives matter protest coverage over the year and the damage that that caused and how, for the most part, they either just ignored what was happening or just focused on the nice parts. It was a great time had by all. And to see it twisted into something is like the greatest insurrection that's ever happened in our country. It's like that felt a little, a bit wasteful of the term insurrection. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what you, what we saw in the major media outlets at best was incomplete and at worst, completely inaccurate. Oh, uh, yes. Completely agree. Elliot, I did not know that you have covered some Black Lives Matter protests. Can you take just a couple of minutes to contrast this protest versus what you saw at a Black Lives Matter protest? So the Black Lives Matter one that I covered, it was a peaceful one. Nothing happened there. It was it was pretty calm. There was, I want to say, around 800 to 1,000 people at that one. It was a good size. There was a lot of yelling by everybody, uh, most of it anger and what felt kind of like what to them was like a righteous anger and a lot of because I because when I go to these kinds of things, I like to see what the people there are thinking. Why? What are their reasons for being there? And I can tell it's a good protest when each person has an individual reason for being there. So it's like I go to a COVID lockdown protest and like this person will say they lost their job. This person will say their business has been suffering. You know, this person will say that their friends out of work and they need to get back. Uh, but when I went to the Black Lives Matter, it's like I talked with everybody and no one had no one had a personal reason. It was they recited back the uh, grievances, the grievances given by the main speaker and then kind of said that like they because most of the people there at the black lives matter protests were white which i found kind of funny kind of white college age and most of them felt like they had some guilt in what was going on and you could feel that like it it was not comfortable walking around that group because none of them were happy none of them were excited to be there they felt like our society is dying and this is our last hope is what it felt like when I was there. But to contrast that with January 6th, it's like it felt like people were having a great time and they felt like democracy was going to do something great that day. Wow. I do think it's important. And I would tell you this because I, I am a seeker and lover of truth. Hmm. And I will tell you, those, those, there are many who have uh, similar political persuasions as I do who would say that all Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protests end in violence and destruction. And it doesn't matter to me whether it's for my cause or against my cause in the way I believe, I still am a believer in truth. And so I really appreciate you sharing the fact that that was a peaceful protest because we need to call that out when that's true. Because I know that when you watch conservative outlets that most of the BLM protests were portrayed as violent. And certainly there were quite a few that were violent, but it's nice to hear that you went to one that that, that in fact was not the case. So I'm also interested about, you said that it felt like there was guilt there. Is it, when the speakers were talking about the grievances, was it meant to induce that guilt? Was it, here's the grievances, or was it people who are not of color are responsible for this and need to be held accountable and should feel guilty for all the things that we've endured? Did, is that some of what you experienced? It definitely felt like pushed on guilt, which was quite, it was comedic in a sense because you had to see 
and uh, I mean, yes, it, there were different races there, but for the majority, it was kind of my age, kind of like twenties, low twenties, white college student age. And, you know, they had the speaker up there. It was this big black guy. He was a powerful speaker, but he was just going like, we're in chains. And then the crowd would go back, we're in chains. And he was doing it from like the perspective of like, you know, the, the African community is so downtrodden and this is what we're saying. And, but it was just all these white people saying it back, which felt, I mean, it, I, I, it, it was very strange. It was very surreal. Cause I mean, you know, I wanted to figure out why all these people were there and the people, most of the people there that I talked to, and I tried to talk to people from different races, different backgrounds. It's like, there was a, there was an African-American lady who was there, who was very passionate about being there. And she had personal reasons, you know, she had had a brother or two killed during the drug war. And so she actually had some experience with what was going on. She had a personal reason, but most of the people there just had like a, this weird sort of guilt that their race had done something wrong. And that they were there to fix it somehow. It was really strange. It felt oppressive in a very weird way. So I'm going to put a shameless plug in here for one of our previous podcasts where we, we talked a little bit about critical race theory. And I think this is an important concept because I think you and I would say that the Lord holds us accountable for individual responsibility. And I absolutely believe racism is wrong and is evil. And I don't believe that's what the Lord has called us to. This movement, I think, has a huge desire to place that guilt upon system structures and race rather than individual responsibility, because when you desire to overthrow and tear down systems, individual responsibility has no place in that conversation, because you can't really say, well, this person is a racist, and because that person's a racist, we now need to tear down the whole system. What you have to do is you have to say that race is racist. And these systems are inherently racist. And therefore, now we have the justification we need to tear that down and rebuild in the image that we prefer. Yeah. So I find it very interesting as you share that that guilt was just generally and sort of universally pushed out. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like, is, is every system going to have its flaws? Of course. It's like, I don't believe our system is perfect, but I believe it's the best we've had. Definitely, if you look at history, it's the best we've had. And it's come through a lot to get here. It's like, yes, there are, every system is going to have a bias and an issue. But to categorize the entire system that way, it throws out the baby with the bathwater. I agree. I'm going to have to apologize here because I think I got us a little off track. It's very unique that somebody's been to a BLM protest and this January 6th protest what I would say is from a neutral point of view. So when, when you said that, I was like, wow, I really want to hear about this. Well, if you want but, me to tie it together a little, it's like when I went, I didn't have the same fear of talking to people at the Black Lives Matter one that I did at the Trump rally at January 6th. Because, I mean, I'm a talkative guy. I'm a friendly guy. I like going and talking to people. And at other protests, it's like I can go up to people and I'm like, hey, you know, this is my name. I'm here to do this. You know, do you have any thoughts to give? And when I did that at January 6th, it's like people were very happy to say why they were there and they were excited to talk about what was going on. But at the Black Lives Matter protest, no one would give me anything. I think I asked probably 40 people while I was there if they would give an interview, something quick. And I don't ask for names or anything. And it's like, if they want to blur their face, fine. I'm good on privacy. But I think maybe six of them said yes, maybe seven. It was a weird thing where they wouldn't take the individual there wasn't an element of individual there. 
And there definitely was a January 6th. People were very excited to tell you where they'd come from, why they were there, what they believed in. That's astounding. Was there anything about January 6th that we haven't covered that you would like to make sure you share? There was a lot of coverage in the media kind of portraying it as a white nationalist uprising in a way. You know, I see that a lot of places. I mean, yes, was a lot of people there white? Yes, I was there. I was white. I thought it was really strange. And I don't see it talked about anywhere. The sheer crazy amount of mostly Chinese individuals there who were there to protest the CCP in a way and bring up that, hey, we came from this place and this is what's going on in our country. And we don't want that happening here. There were probably a dozen or so tour buses that showed up while we were there just walking the streets that were just filled with Asians that were just there to join the crowd, which I thought was kind of a weird, it wasn't a group I expected, but it was, I mean, it was cool to have them there. It was cool to have everybody there. Well, I would have never, I would have never made that link, but that's true. If, if they have lived under that regime in China, they understand what elections that are not fair, that, you know, are just presented as, as really, I would say, almost as just a, a secondary thought, it, it just, just to create the illusion that the elections are actually occur and that you can trust them. And so I, I don't think I would have ever thought that, yeah, people would show up saying, we've experienced this in our country. We absolutely don't want that to happen here in the U.S. That's why we came here. Yeah, I didn't expect it at all. They were everywhere. They had dozens of cars that all had signs on them talking about down on the CCP, talking about fair elections. It was and like one of the pastors with us, he was from Iran originally. His family fled the revolution when that happened there. So he was there because he had seen, you know, he had seen revolutionary things happen in his home country. And he wanted to avoid that here. It's like there were a lot of people from overseas that were there that had come and moved to America and joined the American dream as it is now. And that were there because they felt like they were going to have something come over from their country that they didn't want. Man, I, I just really appreciate you sharing this. And I, um, I'm just excited that I can get a real firsthand account of someone who was there, not something that's coming through, uh, you know, the VHF signals to, to the TV and, and trying to paint that narrative. Unfortunately, I think this is all we have time for today, but I am excited about interviewing you in the future uh, because I think in interviewing you, you have a lot of perspectives and a lot of experience that a lot of us don't because you've traveled and visited some of these things. So if it'd be okay, I would love to uh, love to reach out again at some point and sit down and have a conversation that our listeners uh, could learn from. Hey, I'd love to be back. This was a great time. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much. As you listened to this interview, did you get the same sense I did or maybe come to the same conclusion? that perhaps what the media has portrayed may not be completely honest and fully representative of what January 6th was really like, when possible, always go to the source. You're listening to The Grid, a podcast production of the Kingdom Patriot Group. You can find us on the web at kingdompatriot.us. Join us in the fight for faith and freedom, Mondays on your favorite podcast platform. In our next January 6th interview, co-host Sean Griffin interviews Calvert on what he experienced on the days leading up to and including January the 6th. But you will have to wait to hear that interview on the next episode. Also, don't forget to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. Your membership is appreciated 
Your input is valued. Your voice is needed.